0: As we continue our consideration of various psalms this evening, we're going to consider Psalm 90. So if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, let us hear God's holy word. This is entitled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Dear ones, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's seek the Lord's blessing upon the proclamation of his word this evening. Our Lord and Father in heaven, we thank you that in Christ you are indeed our dwelling place, our refuge, our ultimate home. We ask, Lord, that you would be our dwelling place this evening and as we seek to receive instruction from your holy scriptures and we do pray that by your spirit you would illuminate us open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word and grant us grace o lord to take to heart that which the spirit is speaking to us in this portion of your god-breathed scriptures grant me your grace o lord to declare your word with clarity and power And we ask, Lord, that Jesus would be glorified this evening uh, in the proclamation of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon for this evening is Our Dwelling Place in All Generations. And I'd encourage you, especially the children, to Uh, be uh, listening for the following words, the words eternal, transient, brevity, wrath, mercy, and restoration. Well, dear friends, this was not their actual name, but we'll call them the Smith family. The Smiths were wonderful neighbors to my family in the neighborhood in which I grew up. They lived practically across the street from us, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith showed their kindness and open-hearted hospitality to us by inviting us to use their backyard pool anytime we wished during the hot days of summer. We didn't even have to ask as long as they weren't having other guests over. We were welcome to pop by any time. We didn't even have to knock on the door or let them know. We could just stop by any time and use their pool as long as one of our parents was with us. Mrs. Smith and my mother ended up becoming really good friends, and I can still remember the many times during the hot, lazy summer days of my youth when my brother and I had just a grand old time splashing about in the Smith's large backyard pool, carefree and content as the sun beat down upon us. I can just picture it in my mind Often during these hot, carefree summer days, Mrs. Smith and my mother sat by the poolside, engrossed in the friendly chatter of conversation as Mrs. Smith's daughter, who is a few years older than me, quietly but devotedly worked on her suntan. But one evening, something happened that would bring an end to these carefree summer days at the Smith's poolside. I think I was in middle school at the time, we called it junior high school back then. I think it was either in seventh or eighth grade, and I believe that it was an evening in either one of the fall or winter months. The phone rang. I think we had just had dinner. The phone rang. And my parents received a rather strange phone call from the Smiths' daughter, who was in high school at the time. They also had a son, but he was away at, the co- at college at this particular time. Well, my parents, after they put the phone down, they looked rather sober and shaken up, sort of they had that deer-in-the-headlights look after they put the phone down. And then they explained to me and my brother that the Smith's daughter had just gotten word that her parents, who had been out for the evening, had been tragically and instantaneously killed in a horrible car accident. I remember, I believe it was it involved a truck, and I was told that... Uh, Uh, that they didn't even, it happened so quickly they wouldn't have even known what happened. And their daughter, who was home alone at the time, asked my parents if they could come over and be with her while she processed this tragic news. There are few things that made a more powerful and lasting impact upon me as a young person than the tragic and unexpected death of Mr. and Mrs. Smith." I believe their funeral was the very first funeral that I had ever attended, and it was an open casket funeral. Friends, these events powerfully impressed upon my young, tender mind the utter uncertainty, frailty and brevity of life and its often, and also the, the awful and unwelcome reality of death and of death's often unpredictable timing. Tragic events such as this one that I've shared with you serve to underscore and to highlight the truths that the Holy Spirit is communicating to us in this powerful prayer of Moses, the man of God, this prayer known as Psalm 90, which we are considering this evening. In this psalm, we read of and learn of truths such as the eternity of God, the brevity and sorrow and toil of human life in our fallen condition. But we also find in this psalm the hope of escape from God's righteous anger through the Lord's forgiving, restoring, renewing mercies. In the face of life's brevity, uncertainty, sorrow, toil, and tragedy, Psalm 90 points us to the Lord as our dwelling place in all generations. Now, in terms of the historical setting of this psalm, this psalm is ascribed to Moses, the prophet Moses, and there's no good reason to to doubt the Mosaic authorship of this psalm. Uh, Although uh, there are, I believe, many Bible critics who would dispute the Mosaic authorship, as they often dispute many of the claims of authorship in Scripture, there's really no good sound reason to reject this as, indeed, having been penned under the inspiration of the Spirit by the prophet Moses. But what occasion led Moses to pen this particular psalm? Well, we're not sure exactly. Uh, We cannot pinpoint any particular event during Moses' ministry, but uh, it would seem to make the most sense that Moses may well have written this psalm uh, during the time of the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, that that 40 years of, of lengthy wandering of God's people in the wilderness. Remember, God had delivered His people, Israel, from their slavery in Egypt. He had given them His Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and He had told them to go in and to conquer the promised land. But the people did not believe in the Lord. They did not trust that the Lord was able to enable them to conquer uh, these great and mighty cities in Canaan, these these uh, great and, and uh, powerful military, uh, military forces that they would face. They had forgotten all that God had done for them in Egypt, how He had poured out the plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so the people of Israel, uh, having been rescued from their slavery, they provoked the, the Lord. Time and time again, they provoked Him with their hard-hearted unbelief. And so God finally says, that's it, to paraphrase, that's it. The whole generation, uh, the whole generation of, uh, of men of fighting age uh, was to perish in the wilderness before God would bring His people into the promised land. And it is perhaps in the futility of their wilderness wanderings that Moses pens Uh, this psalm. Well, what do we learn of in this psalm? This psalm uh, can basically be broken up into three major sections, the opening section, which we find in verses 1 and 2, and then the central section, which we uh, find in verses 3 through 12, and then there is a final section uh, in verses 13 uh, through 17. And this psalm exhibits a number of different moods, a number of different literary genres. The psalm begins on a note, a high note of praise to God as our dwelling place in all generations. But then the central section of the psalm focuses on the sober reality of death, death being uh, the result of God's holy wrath and anger against human sin. But then the psalm closes on a note of prayer and petition, a note of hope, as, as Moses and thus the, the people of God return to the Lord in prayer, beseeching the Lord to return to them and to be their dwelling place once again. So let's go through this wonderful portion of Scripture. And by the way, I would just mention as an aside that that if you're uh, wondering what passages of Scripture to commit to memory, Psalm 90 is a wonderful portion of God's Word uh, to commit to memory. I would commend it to you. In the first two verses, we learn, first of all, of God's eternal nature. If you're following along in your sermon outline, this is the first main point. We learn here of God's eternal nature. It starts off in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. That uh, The word that is translated here as dwelling place could be translated as refuge. What is this referring to? In what sense is the Lord our dwelling place? Well, think about it. The people of God throughout the years of their existence Through most of their existence, at least, the people of God had wandered from nation to nation. We think of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people of God lived as foreigners in a foreign land in Egypt where they were enslaved. It was only uh, after God brought them into the promised land and planted them in the promised land that they had uh, some stability. But even then, even then, uh, there were enemies that arose. God had to raise up the judges and so forth, and uh, and eventually there would be exile. The people would be exiled from their own land. And that just uh, highlights the uncertainty and the transitoriness of, of this present life. But in all these generations where God's people had lived as strangers and aliens in this present life, God has been and had been, and He continues to be our dwelling place in all generations. The Lord is our ultimate eternal home. So again, notice how this psalm begins on a note of praise. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then in verse 2, Moses goes on to write, Before the mountains were born, that's a long time ago, before the mountains were born, or You gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verse 1, Moses has spoken of God being our dwelling place in all generations. And the reason that he has been able to be our dwelling place, the dwelling place of his people in all of the generations of human history, is because God is Eternal. Our God is a multi-generational God. His covenant mercies in Christ are from generation to generation. From everlasting to everlasting. The reason why He can be our dwelling place in all generations is because He is the eternal one. He is from everlasting. To everlasting. He existed even before the mountains were formed in ancient times. Indeed, as the eternal one, God is actually beyond time. He is unbounded by time or space or matter or any other created reality. And if you try to meditate upon the truth of God's eternality, if you try to wrap your brain around that, it, you'll get a headache. It's just, we can't conceive of it. We are time-bound creatures. We can't even begin to imagine God existing outside of time, but He does exist outside of time. He is over time. He is uh, in time. He is from everlasting unto everlasting. Children, all of God exists everywhere at all times. Think about that. All of God exists right here. All of God exists up there. All of God exists now and five minutes ago. All of God exists a thousand years from now in the future. Because God is beyond time. He transcends time. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Whereas we are creatures bounded by time. Oh dear ones, let us look to the everlasting God as our dwelling place. Let us Repose our confidence and trust in Him. He has demonstrated His faithfulness from generation to generation towards His people, and He continues to demonstrate His faithfulness and love to us even uh, today. He is, as as the hymn writer puts it, He is our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. He is the Eternal One. And this should fill us with a sense of awe. This should fill us with a sense of glory as we contemplate the greatness and majesty of our eternal God. But in contrast to God's eternal being is the brevity of human life, especially human life under God's wrath. And that brings us to the next section, the sobering section of Moses' poem here. Psalm 90 in verses 3 through 12. This brings me to my second point on your outline. Consider next the brevity of human life under God's wrath. Brevity means briefness. We read in verse 3 You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. Where else in the Bible do we read about man returning to the dust? This is clearly an allusion to Genesis 3, verse 19, where God says to Adam, after Adam had fallen into sin, and as part of God's pronouncement of the of curse upon mankind, God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Oftentimes, uh, at a funeral or at a graveside committal service, These words will be quoted, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In the beginning, God formed Adam of the dust of the earth. He supernaturally formed Adam and breathed into Adam life. And Adam became a living being. And God created mankind to live forever. We were not created to die, for we were created in the image of the eternal God. But here, in Psalm 90, verse 3, Moses writes, You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. The context makes it clear that the reason for this return to the dust, the reason for death, ultimately is the righteous anger and wrath of God against human sin. Human death is ultimately the result of human sin, as we're told in Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is what? The wages of sin is death. Physical death, obviously, but not just physical death. Spiritual death, and ultimately, for those who are not redeemed, eternal death under the holy wrath of God. And in this passage, Moses affirms that that God is the ultimate sovereign over life and death. Ultimately, He is the one who determines the number of our days, whether our days will be many or few or somewhere in between. And He is the one who sovereignly allots to us the boundaries of our lives. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, that fateful evening, When they got in their car to go out, I'm sure they were not expecting to happen what happened to them. But nevertheless, that was part of God's sovereign plan, according to His divine wisdom. And then in verse 4, Moses goes on to say, as as Moses expands upon this uh, this, uh, contrast between the eternity of God and the brevity of human life, He says in verse 4, "...for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night." Here, we are given the divine perspective on time. God, the Eternal One, is beyond the confines of time, and therefore He relates to time differently than we do as time-bound creatures. This reminds me of what the Apostle Peter writes in 2nd peter uh, chapter 3 verse 8 i'd invite you to turn there if you'd like 2nd peter chapter 3 i'm going to begin reading at verse uh, verse 8 and in this the context of this passage peter is addressing the scoffers those who who mock christians because you know we say that jesus is going to return and and people will say well it's been it's been so long where is the promise of his coming i thought you said he was coming back and and how does Peter address that? Well, he says this in verse eight, Second Peter 3, verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, because again, the Lord has a different view on time than we do but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has a reason for delaying the final judgment. God is sovereign over time, and God has a different perspective on time, for He is the eternal one. And it's interesting, you know, a thousand years to us seems like practically an eternity. A thousand years, imagine living a thousand years, Imagine having a Methuselah lifespan, if you will. What was it? Was it Methuselah who lived to be almost a thousand years old in the Old Testament? And that seems to us to be so long. But from God's perspective, a thousand years is like yesterday when it's passed away, or even, as he continues to use this imagery, as a watch in the night, as a watch in the night. What is a watch in the night? Well, a night watch was a period of about four hours in length. And, and this, is, this imagery is piled up to say, look, God's perspective on time is not the same as your perspective and mine as limited creatures. In fact, uh, for those of you who are, are uh, seasoned saints, if you will, up there in years, uh, Hasn't your perspective on time changed over the years? I remember when I was a a young child, when I was, uh, you know, in elementary school, I remember thinking that uh, 20-year-olds were just so old. I mean, and I couldn't imagine, you know, wow, how long is it going to be if I live to be 20 years old? That's so far in the future. But now, as I look back on that as a 56-year-old, I'm like, wow, where did the time go? (laughs) Your perspective on time changes over time. And the older you are, it just it seems that uh, the the more you live, the shorter the years, the quicker the years seem to fly by. Well, how much more so is God's perspective on on time different from our own? And then to underscore what he's saying, look at verses five and six. The, Moses writes, "You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. A death." sweeps us away like a flood, like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers. Again, these verses emphasize the brevity of life. Dr. Van Gemmeren, in commenting on uh, this reference to the, to, to the grass which uh, flourishes in the morning and, and Uh, fades and withers away in the evening he writes the analogy comes out of the context of the dry summer climate in Canaan where the green landscape of the winter and spring could be changed to a brown parched scenery within a few days of hot weather the time designations of morning and evening are metaphors for the brevity of life and are not to be taken literally with with a wooden kind of literalness. And then he goes on to write in verses 7 through 11, he begins to focus more on the cause, the reason for life's brevity, and that is the anger of the Lord against human sin. Verse 7, for we have been consumed by your anger, and oh, the faithless children of Israel during the wilderness generation, they experienced the anger of the Lord. Ultimately, they were not able to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief because they did not trust the Lord to do for them what He had promised to do. We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. One of the things that Mr. Rotman stressed in his testimony on Friday night, he realized that he could be a he could a appear on the outside as, a, as an observant religious Jew. He could appear very pious, very righteous, but, but behind closed doors he had a potty mouth, a foul mouth, and, and he had sin and wickedness in his heart. You may think that you can hide your sins from God, but the Lord is not only eternal, He is all-knowing, and He sees what you and I think in our heart of hearts. He sees what we do behind closed doors. Children, you can't hide any, you can hide some things from your parents, but you can't hide anything from the Lord. He sees all. And it says, our secret sins are placed in the light of your presence. Verse nine, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. And then he reflects upon the average lifespan. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or, if due to strength, eighty years now, of course he 's he's giving a general uh, he's the, a general statement about the average lifespan. Moses himself lived well beyond eighty years, uh, so some people live beyond this seventy or eighty year period, others' uh, lives are, are snuffed, off, snuffed out prior to that b- before they reach those years but uh, what is characterized? What, what do the days of our lives, what are they characterized by? Well, he goes on to say in verse 10, Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. And he's not saying that this is all life is characterized by. There are pleasures, there are joys in life. But even in the midst of our pleasures, even in the midst of feasting, there is sorrow. Even in the midst of our pleasures, there is sorrow and toil that characterizes our life, living life in this fallen context under the wrath of God. For soon it is gone, and we fly away. And then, verse 11, who understands the power of your anger? The implication is no one does. God is infinitely holy and righteous. We feel glimpses of His anger uh, and through the, the miseries of this present life. But God's anger, it, it's not a, a temper tantrum, a sinful temper tantrum when God gets angry. His anger and wrath are his settled opposition to that which is unholy, that which is contrary to his holy character. And God is a God of infinite holiness and righteousness. God is very angry with those who have sinned against him, those who have rebelled against him. It stirs up his anger, and his anger is a holy anger, a holy, righteous indignation against our sin. And who understands the power of his anger? And verse 11 goes on to say, And your fury according to the fear that is due you. We don't begin to understand just how holy God is, And just how angry he is with sin. He is patient. He is kind. He holds back the full manifestation of his wrath in this present age. But his anger is coming. The full manifestation of his holy wrath is coming on judgment day. And so what is the conclusion here? I mean, here in verses 7 through 11, the brevity and sorrow of life lived in our fallen context is highlighted as we live life. Uh, under the righteous wrath and anger of God. Our brief lifespan in this fallen context is characterized by labor and sorrow, as verse 10 tells us. Again, perhaps Moses has in view the experience of the wilderness generation as he writes this. And this leads him to verse 12 where he asks a petition of the Lord. He offers a prayer to the Lord for wisdom. He says in verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In other words, it's as if he's saying, Lord, since our days are so few and so fleeting and sorrowful, and since your anger against sin is so great, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? What Children, what is the beginning of wisdom? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. So this petition in verse 12, what does it imply? Well, since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the brevity of our lives and the reality of God's righteous wrath against our sins should prod us, should lead us to seek His grace in a spirit of repentance and trust. Well, this leads us naturally to the last hope-filled section of this psalm. This psalm, again, takes us to the heights and the depths of the extent of, of human emotion. It begins with praise, and then it plunges us into uh, a somber, the somber reality of death and the wrath of God. But then, finally, in verses 13 through 17, we see Moses offering a plea for mercy and restoration. This is the final point in your sermon outline we find here in these verses in this final section of psalm 90 a plea for mercy and restoration and so moses writes do return o lord and notice the word lord it's in all capital letters this is yahweh the covenant name of god a name that that has in view god as the gracious merciful forgiving a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of His people. Do return, O Yahweh. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning. There again is that morning and evening imagery. Human life is like grass that, that flourishes in the morning and by evening time it withers away. But, but there is a new morning that Moses looks to. He says, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness." that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Replace this sorrow with gladness. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children, which is another way of saying, Lord, intervene, act in grace and mercy, restore us, be our dwelling place once again. And not only that, he goes on to pray in verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, he repeats himself for emphasis. Confirm the work of our hands. The work of our hands in this fleeting, brief life, which is but a a flash in the pan, but a blip on the radar screen of eternity. This life, how can we in this brief life bear spiritual fruit for God? Only as God in mercy confirms the work of our hands. Again, in these verses, we see a mood of hope returning as Moses prays for God to return to His afflicted, humbled people. In other words, to become their dwelling place once more. And ultimately, friends, this last section of Psalm 90, ultimately this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Christ, God's mercies have been restored, and indeed they are, they are confirmed, and they are sure, and they are certain to us if we are in Christ Well, dear ones, I began this sermon by telling you the story of the tragic death of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, as I've been calling them. But in God's kind providence and in hindsight, I believe there was actually a silver lining to the dark cloud of this tragic event. You see, I believe that the reason that Mr. and Mrs. Smith were so kind and so welcoming to my family is because they were followers of Jesus Christ, they were Christians. They loved the Lord. They they were never pushy or overbearing about their faith, although I believe that Mrs. Smith would sometimes speak about her faith in Christ to my mother in their friendly poolside conversations. In addition to her words, their words to us, their welcoming spirit and kindness and open-hearted neighborliness toward our family was a powerful witness for Christ to us. I don't think I was a believer at the time, but in hindsight, I recall the preacher at their funeral giving a clear and powerful and simple presentation of the gospel. I also recall after their funeral service, a a kindly lady approaching my brother and me. She noticed that we were uh, upset, probably crying, and she sat down with us, seeking to comfort us. And I remember her telling us, you don't need to worry about Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They're with Jesus." Take comfort there with the Lord. I believe that God used their loving Christian witness along with the gospel message I heard at their funeral service to sow the seed of His Word in my heart, seed that would later bear the fruit of conversion through the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. God brought good to many out of that evil tragedy. Though their lives were cut off prematurely, at least from a human perspective, the Lord graciously confirmed the work of their hands by using their humble, simple, loving Christian witness to touch the lives of many, including myself. And their legacy lives on. Their son, after graduating from college, went on to grow, he went on to become a foreign missionary. And my mother still keeps in touch periodically with their daughter, who continues along with her family today. Uh, to walk with the Lord in faith. Their legacy continues. For the Lord had confirmed the work of their hands, though their lives had been cut short. And what the Lord did for them in making their brief lives fruitful for eternity, He can do for each and every one of us as we trust in Him. Dear ones, let us turn to the Lord and look to Him alone as our refuge, our dwelling place. Our ultimate home, and let us trust in him to confirm the work of our hands, to take the labors of this brief life of ours, and to bear spiritual fruit through our lives. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, sovereign and eternal God, we thank you and praise you that you are from everlasting even unto everlasting, that you are our dwelling place in all generations. Lord, in this side of glory, in this life, we face uncertainty, we face sorrow and toil, and sometimes we face shocking tragedy. And yet we know, Lord God, that we can rest in you. For you, O God, are our dwelling place. May we have a deepened sense of that spiritual reality in our lives. And may we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to dwell in our midst and by his spirit who dwells within us. And may we walk in faith, hope, and love through union with him. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's close our time of worship by rising and we'll sing from Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, hymn 406, Jesus with thy church abide. We will sing the first three stanzas, stanzas one through three and also stanzas six and nine. We'll rise and sing together hymn 406.